Jesus said, I have come with good news for the poor. And for the poor man in this story, for Lazarus, this is great news. Those who have little now will receive much, and those who have much now will come up empty. Does that make anybody in Chevy Chase nervous? Or let me ask that another way. Are these the shadows of the things that will be? Are they shadows of things that may be only? Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends to which, if persevered in, they must lead. But if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. Anybody know where that quote's from? A Christmas carol. That's right. Good old Ebenezer Scrooge. Now, maybe if you grew up seeing the Muppet version, you weren't quite as familiar with that quote as your first time around. But this is Ebenezer Scrooge. Remember that he divorces himself from reality after a painful past. And this chasm he creates separates himself from the poor, from his family, his friends, the plight of Bob Cratchit, and from empathy itself. This quote is from Ebenezer's realization of what he's done as he says to the specter Christmas future. Are these the shadows of things that will be or may be? Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends to which if persevered in they must lead, but if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. Well, hear the good news for the wealthy in this passage. If the ways be departed from, it is thus. But to know how to depart from the courses foreshadowed in Christmas Carol is a different thing than that course shown to us in Holy Writ today. Now, my understanding of preaching is that the congregation sends the pastor to the scripture on their behalf to try to bring back a word from the Lord for us. As part of that process, I usually try to translate the text into a way that will sort of hit home with the hearers in this time and place. So I tried to do that, and we'll see how it goes. Once upon a time, there was a Chevy Chase man who dressed in great suits and ate out at restaurants whenever he wanted to because he had the money to do it. And on the other side of his gate, called the Anacostia River, was a poor man named Lazarus who longed to satisfy his needs by a little bit more of that which fell from the rich man's table, often known as minimum wages. Now the poor man Lazarus died and got to hang out with Father Abraham. The Chevy Chase man died and found himself in a pit of fire. He looks in the distance, sees Lazarus with Abraham, and says, Hey, waiter, give me a drink. I'm burning up over here. Abraham says, I can't. There's a big chasm between you and me. Also, remember that you treated Lazarus terribly on earth? Did you ever try living on minimum wages? The Chevy Chase man says, Well, at least send Lazarus to tell my friends who are making lots of money that they need to help out the poor in more ways than just donating to a charity when they feel like it, or else they're going to burn up down here too. Abe responds, Sorry. They won't listen. 
They won't listen to the protests in the Dakotas. They won't listen to the Black Lives Matter movement. You think a walking dead zombie of the poor people they already don't care about is going to change their minds? Chevy Chase, man, you need to check your temperature. Again, it's a joke, but it's hot down there because it's hell. The word of the Lord. Now, this is good news for the poor, but is there no hope for the rich then? Are these in Ebenezer's words the shadows of things that will be or may be? Are the wealthy doomed for the fiery furnace? Now, in earlier centuries, the pastors would have come up here and said, Yes, you are doomed, unless you give all your money to us. Now, I tried throwing that out as a line for stewardship this year, but didn't buy it. But if you are a biblical literalist, right, this is what you're going to hear preached in church this Sunday. This is a painting of hell. you got a choice. You give your money away, or you give away your eternity. What's your pick? I think if you're willing to look deeper into the Bible, you realize pretty quickly that Jesus didn't come to condemn anyone. And he sure didn't come to condemn anyone to hell. The most important thing to note about that is that Jesus didn't believe in hell. Now, you can read Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, for a more thorough presentation of the argument. But suffice it to say that hell, as we conceptualize it, is not an Old Testament Jewish theology. It's just not there. You can open up your Bible right now, and you might be able to find the word Sheol. It's a very different concept about sort of a physical place outside the city of Jerusalem. What happens is that the Israelites, remember, are exiled in Babylon. They are there, and they don't get just a few years of slavery. They also pick up some of the theology of the Mesopotamian cultures, and they bring that back home. They know it, but it's necessarily part of their theological beliefs. Also, centuries later, when the Greeks take over the Mediterranean, some of their afterlife ideas come into the Jewish mind. That's why they know the word Hades. Anybody who's taken a mythology class should have been a little surprised when they read this New Testament Jewish Bible and a Greek word for the afterlife shows up. So what's Jesus doing then? This is a prophetic parable, also known as a tall tale. Jesus uses fantasy and popular cultural settings to talk not descriptively about the afterlife, but to make people change their lives now, in the present tense. We know Scrooge's story. It's a conversion story. In the present, he makes right all of his financial wrongdoing. God bless us, everyone. Similarly, if you read the story of Zacchaeus, or maybe some of you saw a musical here earlier this year when our students, our young students, showed us the story of Zacchaeus. Remember that Zacchaeus was a very wealthy man. He sees Jesus, and he's compelled to act with mercy. He returns all the money that he's earned less meritoriously as he would have hoped and pays it back four times over. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. So we know 
that Jesus isn't in the business of condemning anyone. So what is his deal? Well, the bad news is that you and I are already in hell. The good news is that Jesus wants to get us out of it. One of the hit plays of the past few years in the off-Broadway scene is a play called The Christians. And it'll be playing at uh, Theater J down 16th Street in a couple of months. But it's a story of a pastor, a non-denominational church, who reveals from the pulpit that he no longer believes in one of the central tenets of their salvation theology, hell. It starts this huge firestorm, this huge conflict. And during the sermon, he shares a dialogue that he had with God. The pastor had been reflecting on this child who hadn't said, I want Jesus in my heart, who had saved his sister from a burning building but died from the flames. Another pastor tells him, well, it's a shame that he has to go to hell. The pastor in the play is crying, he's sobbing. He can't believe this. And this is what his dialogue with God sounds like. God says, he saved us. God's taken care of us. God said, why don't you listen when I tell you that? God says, you think the devil's a little man with horns? God says, you think that? And I said, I don't know. And he said, do you really think that? Do you really, really, really think that? And I said, no, not really. And God said, there is no little man. There's only you and your fellow man. You want to see Satan? There's your Satan. You want to see hell? Look around. And God said, there is no hell. There's no reason to tell people they're going to hell because they are in hell. They're already there. You've got to take them out of the hell that they're already in. The pastor then speaks to the congregation directly at this point and says, I know you have a powerful urge to communicate God's love, to bring people into this church, to help them, to save them, to make their lives better and their afterlives everlasting. But you are failing because the distance between you and everyone else is insurmountable. But I'm here to tell you, the distance is you. The distance is me. It's all of us. We put the distance there when we shun our neighbors, when we judge our friends, when we look down at people from other places and other religions, we create an insurmountable distance when there is no distance at all. Friends in Christ, you and I, we as a society, we have created our own hells in the bifurcation of our lives. We separate the haves and the have-nots in a whole variety of creative ways, many of them systemic. Think about housing prices. Did you know that the zip codes that surround our church are in the top 2% wealthiest incomes, uh, median household incomes across the country? 43,000 zip codes, and we're in the top 2%. There's a neighborhood just to the north here that has the highest median household income 
of any neighborhood in the United States of America. So we have some systemic issues. As John Donahue suggests, one of the prime dangers of wealth is that it causes blindness. It doesn't take much to open our eyes to our personal blindness, too, the chasms that we create. Perhaps you judge somebody at some point in your life. Okay, we've all judged somebody at some point in our life, right? They're not dressed like me. They probably belong to some other socioeconomic group. They don't have the pedigree, so I really don't have to listen to their opinions about this thing. You might be doing it to me right now. That Eric is way too progressive. That Eric is way too conservative. Believe it or not, I've gotten that here too. Now, Jesus may be telling a tall tale, but all of us participate in building these chasms we've carved out to give ourselves a false sense of superiority. This kind of either-or thinking is often called dualism. And our brains have good reasons for creating dualisms. This us-versus-them mentality really helped out our ancestors. Because as humanity was thriving, we were thriving in groups and tribes because we were able to know who was us. We were also to predict who was them and the other group. The other groups at that time being far more unpredictable. But now we live in the 21st century. This evolutionary advantage has now become a cognitive disadvantage that creates all sorts of barriers. Xenophobia nationalism, racism, sexism. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news of the gospel is that we are not doomed to create hells that separate us from one another. According to Ken Wilber and his theory called Spiral Dynamics, dualistic thinking is just one stop on the spiritual and neurological journey that most humans partake. See, we all start at step one, which is self-preservation. We just want to take care of ourselves. And every human on this planet makes it to step two, which is this time when we figure out the us or them. Usually as a preschooler, we begin to get this. And if you think about that, it's actually rather helpful, right? We need some categories. This is a safe thing to touch, and this is not. This is a block, and this is a wheel. This will not work well as a wheel in a car. This will make the car move. So there are categories that are helpful. The problem is that many of us get stuck in this place, and we never can get past the difference of good and bad, black and white, Republican and Democrat. many more end their lives in step three, which is this cognitive focus on the pragmatic. Basically, what works, right? I'm not going to worry about the details of who's on that side and that side, but I just want to know what works. Many non-dominational churches love this step because it's not about exactly where are people in the kingdom of God. They just want to know what gets people in the doors, what is effective. Whatever works is the highest goal of level three. But this pragmatism sometimes has downfalls. 
And you can still, as a pragmatist, use the dualisms for your advantage. Think, for example, perhaps a politician who might create an us versus them group for their pragmatic purposes, because when you create a versus group, it makes your group look really good. Now, the fourth and fifth stops are where the money is, because they rely most fully on mystery and inclusion. Instead of fighting all the differences, we can learn to dwell in the mystery of wonder. To transcend those earlier steps, but to include them. To see folks in a left and right mentality, not as lesser people, but as other passionate people. To see everyone in God's creation as beautiful, as wonderful. You can tell someone who's at this level of the dynamics because you know these people in your life who don't think about evangelicals or the other political party as bad people, but as other human beings that they could learn something from. And whenever we have that mentality that we can learn from a person that our society says is less than, you've met someone who's taking this seriously. So dualism is hell. This kind of living is heaven. The narrative arc of the Bible is that journey. We start with God's blessing to this small group of people, right? One family, eventually Abraham, and then a nation. As the Old Testament proceeds forward, we see God's love going beyond Israel versus the world to Israel and the world. A light to the Gentiles. Eventually, not just a light to the Gentiles, but a light with the Gentiles. Our session had a retreat yesterday for a good long seven hours. And one of the scripture texts we looked at was the Council of Jerusalem, Acts 15, when a question is proposed to the original disciples, hey, these new Christians out there are not getting circumcised. And I mean, they seem to love Jesus, but they're not doing the things that our rules say a good Jew and believer in God does. It's kind of us versus them. And at the Council of Jerusalem in the book of Acts, after the Gospels, they finally come together and say, there are some rules, but circumcision is not one of them. Transcend and include. God's love broadening its appeal. And certainly Jesus is emblematic of this narrative arc. Jesus is the kind of person who heard that prostitutes were outside of love of God. And so what did Jesus do? He went and hung out with them. When Jesus was told that the Gentiles were outside the love of God, he made it clear that it was the good Samaritan who was more welcome in the kingdom of God than the dualistic Jew. Pastor Nadia Bowles Weber sums it up best when she says that whenever you and I draw a line in the sand, you will always find Jesus on the other side. Whenever we draw a line in the sand, there is Jesus on the other side. 
One of my favorite songs is by a progressive Christian artist named Gunger. It says, we will not fight their wars. We will not fall in line. Because if it's us or them, it's us for them. Us for them. We reject the either or. They cannot define us anymore. Because if it's us or them, it's us for them. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we choose to participate in it. Us for them. Us with refugees. Republicans and Democrats. It's time to transcend and include. It's time to declare that black lives matter, not just with our thoughts and not as an act of exclusion, but because everyone deserves to be in the fold of God. It's time to declare that not one more single gay, lesbian, or transgender friend of mine is going to commit suicide because they grow up in a church that they are told the gospel does not include them. It's time to prepare the way of the Lord by declaring that grace abounds, that Jesus Christ reigns supreme, and that everyone is invited to the great banquet of the love of God. Are these the things that will be or may be? May we wake up with our Christmas mornings new life. May it be for you. May it be for me. Amen.